Wonderful. Welcome to church this morning, everybody. It is wonderful to be with you and to the fathers. I know we've said it already, but a happy Father's Day. And thank you for bringing your families to church this morning. You could have stayed in bed and had breakfast in bed and spent a nice day doing what you love. But it's really, really special. And we really, really, I really, really want to thank you for bringing your families to church. It's a good place to be. And so this morning, we will be continuing through our uh, series through Ruth. And um, this is my first ever preach on a Sunday morning. And, uh, yeah. and I do have a confession to make. I've always wanted to use this mark, so I'm very excited. <laughs> it's like a Britney Spears mark. It's like my dreams coming true. Um, but when you think about maybe preaching one day on a Sunday, you kind of hope you're going to get like a parable or like the Christmas story, something that's really nice and easy to kind of talk about and be on board. But um, this morning, I get to cut my teeth on what is considered, outside of the Song of Solomon, the most scandalous passage of Scripture. And so I am really excited. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and hopefully we'll get some good stuff out of it. And so just a disclaimer, I did find this passage a little bit challenging. And so I did have a lot of help. I read a lot of commentaries. I listened to a couple of pastors. In fact, Francois so kindly sent me a message saying, there's this pastor, his name's uh, David Platt, and he does a really, really good preach on Ruth 3, and then I had to go back and edit a whole bunch of stuff, because I was like, now he'll know how much I stole. So um, not all of these ideas are mine, but I hope that God will speak regardless. And so just to recap, to tell you where we are in the story, the story of Ruth starts with an entire family running from the shelter of God, his place, and his people to a land with seemingly more to offer. Maybe they didn't realize at the time that this was, in fact, a move of compromise, and maybe they just thought it was a land of opportunity. But either way, this man, Elimelech, he uh, took his whole family and his future and his provision of food, because there was a famine in the land, and he moves to a land called Moab. And there in Moab, he loses everything. He loses his life, he loses his two sons, and he leaves a widow named Naomi, poor and destitute and angry with God. She hears that there's food back in Israel, and so she uh, takes her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who um, has seemingly come to know the God of Israel, and he, she wants to be where he is. And they go back to Israel. It's already starting the whole mouth thing. <laughs> and so the two of them come back to Israel in need of food and a family. And so Ruth, she's a hard worker. We heard about her um, beautifully last week, but she goes and she starts to glean in the fields to provide food for herself and her mother-in-law. And she just happens to enter into the field of a man called Boaz. And as Mikey said last week, there he is. Boaz, this man of incredible character who loves God and who extends to Ruth safety and provision way beyond what the law requires. He showers her with mercy and kindness and generosity, and you get the sense that perhaps something is brewing in the romance department. He also happens to be a close relative and a kinsman redeemer, and we'll hear more about what that truly means next week. But um, he is a man who is able to provide security and protection for Ruth. And so when Naomi hears this, she gets excited for the first time in a long time, I think, and she tells Ruth to stay in his field, this man Boaz. But after a number of weeks of gleaning in the field and having these interactions with Boaz, the chapter two ends with one of the most anticlimactic sentences of the whole story. 
And it says, and Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. <laughs> Boaz has not yet made a move. <laughs> the problem of food is taken care of. Boaz has been extremely, extremely generous. But the issue of family is still unresolved. But shall we also end in hope that God is at work in the lives of his people, even when they don't see it? And so before we start, um, just a thought that I had. I love that throughout the book of Ruth, God never speaks directly or intervenes directly, as Francois alluded to this morning. There's no burning bush moment. I've always imagined that it would be easier to do this life if there was a miraculous burning bush telling us what to do. That would be really, really helpful. But that seems to be the exception and not the rule. And so what do we do when God is quiet? How do we live this life when there is no direct directive from the Father? Um, and I believe Ruth shows us something of how to live out this life. It shows us that God is intricately involved in our everyday lives, even when we aren't aware of it. And uh, John Piper has this term that he uses with regards to Ruth chapter 3, and he calls it strategic righteousness. It says, how do we live and make decisions when God is quiet, yet we trust that God is still on his throne and has control? The question which chapter 3 answers is this. What does a God-saturated man a God-dependent young woman and a God-exalting older woman do when filled with the hope and the sovereign goodness of God? The answer is that they manifest a strategic righteousness. By righteousness, I mean zeal for doing what is good and right. A zeal for doing what is appropriate when God is taken into account as sovereign and merciful. And by strategic, I mean that there is an intention, a purposefulness, and a planning Strategic righteousness takes the initiative and dreams of how to make things right. I think one of the lessons we can learn from Ruth 3 as we go through it is that we can hope. There is hope that helps us to dream. Hope helps us to think of ways to do good. Hope helps us to pursue our ventures with virtue and integrity. It's hopelessness that makes people lie or steal or try and weasel their way into a solution. But hope based on the confidence that a sovereign God is for us, gives us a thrilling impulse that we call strategic righteousness. It turns our righteousness into action. And as we will um, go through this chapter, you'll see that all three of the characters in the story of Ruth chapter 3 take strategic righteousness. They take action out of hope. They take what, what Nick titled this chapter when he started, uh, love's request. They ask something. And so we're going to go through it um, verse by verse, and uh, see what happens. All right, so we're going to, I'm going to read out of the NLT, because I think it's just a nice, accessible translation. Right, so Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it is time that I found a permanent home for you, so that you will be provided for. This is essentially Hebrew 4, girl, you need to get married. In some versions, instead of home, it uses the word rest. It's time I find rest for you. And this word, more accurately translated, is a home. It's security. It's provision. It's, it's um, provision that is only found by having a husband in these times. And here we can also see a change in Naomi. Up until now, we can probably all agree that Naomi has been a little bit self-centered and a little bit selfish, probably through no fault of her own. She's had a, a rough life. But she's thought about herself a lot. But now she starts to consider Ruth and how she can benefit Ruth. And uh, I think as we mature in our Christian walk, there should be a shift from self-focus to others-focused. In Philippians 2, it says, verse 3, it says, do not be selfish. Don't try to impress others. 
Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others also. Verse 2 says, Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he has been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young woman. Tonight, he will be winnowing, it's a hard word to say, winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Two things about Boaz here. Again, we are reminded that he is a particularly eligible bachelor for Ruth. Right? He's a kinsman redeemer, someone who can provide a permanent home and this kind of security that Naomi is talking about. Secondly, he would be winnowing barley, which is where essentially after the harvest, you take all the grain that you've harvested and you go to a more secluded area where there's a bit of a breeze and you throw the grain up into the air and the heavy seed falls to the ground and the chaff gets blown away. But the idea here is Boaz will be by himself. Up until now, Ruth and Boaz have had many interactions, but it's been in the field, surrounded by people, not really the place to do what Naomi is about to suggest Ruth does. Yeah, I told you, it's scandalous. Chapter three. Now, do as I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Okay, so here is where things get interesting, and I will do my best to unpack this. First, she tells Ruth to wash and perfume herself and dress in her nice clothes. This is a little bit more than just, Ruth, you've been working in the field for many months, you're a bit smelly, and if you want to get a date, you need to look good. It's more than that. It's, uh, we see King David does something similar in 2 Samuel 12, verses 20. It says he washes himself, he perfumes himself, and he puts on his best clothes, and he does this after his son dies. So the picture here is that Naomi is telling Ruth, it's time for your mourning to be over. You are no longer the widow Ruth, but you are now eligible for marriage. And as believers, I think there's something here for us where we know that there is a preparation for our life with God. We are no longer mourners. If you know Jesus, if you have accepted Jesus, you're no longer a mourner. Actually, it's time to wash yourself, put on perfume, and get on with life. And James, there's a call to leaders to prepare themselves for God, to cleanse their hands, to purify their hearts, and to draw near to him. Would we do that? In chapter 4, it says, be sure to notice where he lies down. Uh, verse 4, sorry. Be sure to notice where he lies down, and then go and cover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. This writer is really saucy stuff, right? To uncover, to lie down next to, it's definitely got some sensual overtones. And uh, you wouldn't do this with just anyone. I mean, Naomi's very specific. She's like, watch to see where Boaz goes to lie down because you don't want to do this to the wrong guy. It would be awkward. Make, take note where he is sleeping. And you're probably thinking, what on earth has gotten into Naomi? What is she thinking? This is the advice that she is giving. This is what she is asking a Moabite, a foreign worker in the field to do to the Israelite owner of the field. It's just, it's not something that you do. And so we are a little bit unsure as to what is happening in this moment. The scholars disagree. Um, we're unsure if this was a recognized practice in the day or not. And we don't, yeah, like I said, the scholars disagree as to what kind of advice this was. Was this really bad advice? Was this Naomi trying to uh, coerce God into action? Was this her taking matters into her own hand and getting something done? Was this perhaps that righteous strategy that she uh, was stepping out in faith to actually get something that she believed God was doing, happening, it was a step of faith? Or perhaps even it was, she was acting on what she thought was scriptural, 
there's an interesting story in, in Deuteronomy 25, and I'm going to paraphrase it. But basically how it goes is this. If there is, there's a woman and uh, her husband dies, if her brother-in-law won't marry her, won't act as the kinsman redeemer to her, won't do his duty, then she is allowed to drag him into the public square in front of the elders, take off his sandal, uncover his feet, and spit in his face. The Bible is not boring. If you aren't reading your Bible, you're missing out on some good stuff. But um, perhaps she was acting on what she believed to be scriptural. Actually, like, Boaz has the opportunity to redeem Ruth. He hasn't in all these weeks, and maybe she's using the Bible to uh, coax him into doing what she wants. Um, But what she does say, what she does do here, is instead of doing it in public, like the scriptures allow for, she says, do it at the threshing floor where no one is going to be around. She gives Boaz the honor of actually being able to have this moment in private, but she is kind of encouraging him yeah, to go like, you haven't done what you should do. Perhaps it is time to do it. So while this plan definitely has some potential overtones, there's also the possibility that this is Naomi's way of reminding Boaz that he has the option to redeem Ruth. Right. Uncovering his feet was sent a clear message. I am available for redemption, for marriage, yet you have not redeemed me. Please, here I am. It's loud and it's bold but it's done quietly with humility and respect not to shame Boaz. But whatever the reason for Naomi's plan, we don't know, this is the plan. What I do know is I think that this is more a descriptive moment in uh, scripture as opposed to prescriptive. Parents, I don't know if your child, there's a guy and she doesn't know if he's interested in her or not, your advice would probably not be wait until he's gone camping, had a good bra, and then sneak into his tent, unzip the bottom of a sleeping bag, and go to sleep. That's probably not what you would do. I wouldn't recommend it. It would be weird. (laughs) Just some good parenting advice. Take it, leave it, whatever. Uh, Verse 5. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. She's actually going to do it. Verse 7, after Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. It is important to note here that in good spirits does not mean that he was drunk. It just means that he was content. Remember, there had been a famine for a decade before this, and this was the first harvest that they would have um, had, and it would have been a celebration. And um, so he would have been in a good mood. Also, if you are going to request something of someone, it's always better when they fill, they're in a better mood. But this word, in good spirit, it means contented. You can almost picture her here hiding away behind the pale, um, a pile of grain on the, win- on the threshing floor, kind of watching in anticipation, watching Boaz winnow. It was probably quite romantic. Maybe it was muscular, I don't know. Um, and then she's like waiting patiently for him to finish and then paying careful attention to where he lies down because she doesn't want to get that wrong. And her heart is pounding because this is risky business, Right? Not only is what she about to do scandalous, it's also dangerous. She has no way to know how Boaz will respond. He could be horrified and kick her out, and she'd lose access to his field and to provision. She pro- probably would be, um, have to move home. Um, he could freak out and expose her and tell everybody what she had done, and then her reputation would be completely ruined. Or he could take advantage of her 
This was in the time of judges where sexual immorality was out of control, and here was a woman presenting herself to a man in a secluded place in a very vulnerable way. A lot of things could have gone wrong. Then Ruth came quietly and covered his feet and lay down. This is a very provocative picture in the language of the Old Testament. It is important to note here, though, that nothing happens. Scripture does not give us any indication that anything happened here that would call into question or ruin the nobility, purity, or integrity of Ruth or Boaz in this moment. What Ruth does is bold, but it is not inappropriate. Verse 8, it says, Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Now we can put ourselves in Boaz's shoes. You're sleeping, it's the middle of the night, you wake up, probably because your feet are cold, and um, there's this woman at the bottom of your bed. Verse 9, he says, who are you? So that's a good question. If you ever find yourself in this situation, it's a good leading question to ask, who are you? And she replies, I am your servant, Ruth. We have heard Ruth call herself a servant before in Ruth chapter 2. But when she uses the word servant in chapter 2, she's talking about a slave or a worker, like bottom of the rung kind of word. But the word that she uses here is different. It's something a little bit more personal. It literally means I'm available for a relationship with you. She also doesn't identify herself as Ruth the Moabite, which she has been known as throughout the story so far. And I think that this is because she wants... Or, or the writer wants us to know that she doesn't just want a husband for a husband's sake, but she actually wants to be um, married to Boaz, who is an Israelite. She wants the God of Israel. So she introduces herself, and now if Naomi is to be believed, Boaz will now tell her what to do. But Ruth switches it up a little bit, and she carries on talking. And she says, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. This is clear. In case Boaz missed the whole lying by his feet thing, she is now making it extra clear. She's saying, Boaz, I'm available for you to marry me. This is forward to say the least because a husband only spread the garment, the corner of his garment over his wife. It meant to bring him close, to protect, to provide for. It's, she's asking him to marry her. And there is a really interesting thing here is that the word that is used for garment here is the same word that is used for wings in chapter 2. When Boaz is um, praying for Ruth, and he says in chapter 2, may the Lord, the God of Israel, who, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. The word for wings and garments are the same word. It's almost like Ruth is reminding Boaz. She said, remember when you prayed for me and you asked God to provide for me? Well, you're the answer to that prayer. He's going to use you to be my reward. And, uh, this moment breaks all the rules. A Moabite has just proposed to an Israelite. A woman has just proposed to a man. A worker has just proposed to an owner. A young person has just proposed to an older person. It's completely backwards. And um, we now get to wait in anticipation for Boaz's response. And this moment in Ruth's life gives me great encouragement. I think she shows us here how we can boldly approach Jesus. It says in Hebrews 4, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This bold request was made off of the backing of Boaz's word. She's like, remember, Boaz, this is what you said. And I think that we can do the same thing. We, the more we read the Bible, the more we get to know what God says about himself and about who he is and about who we are in relation to him. May we get more things that we can boldly request. 
and have the courage to do so. As Mikey says, it's time again to start praying some big, dangerous prayers. But there's also something to be said about Ruth's humility here. She is bold, but she is also incredibly humble. There is a vulnerability that comes with lying down at the feet of another person. Imagine in this day and age being told that the only way that you can get what you want is to lie down at the feet of someone else and have them have complete control over the situation. Often we want the big dramatic moves of God, but Ruth shows us that sometimes in order to see them, we need to humbly lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus and surrender all of our control to him and wait and see what he does next. And so verse 10, it says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. And we all can all breathe a sigh of relief because Boaz is going to be nice to Ruth again. You are showing even more family loyalty or kindness now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Boaz is stunned that Ruth would even consider being interested in him. Boaz rejoices in her selection of him, which is wild because he is quite clearly the catch in this situation. While Ruth is a hero to us, at the time, she would have been a follower, a foreigner. She would have been a widow. She would have been poor. She would have been destitute. While Boaz was this Israelite, he was wealthy. He was a man of good standing. And by law and by culture, he should have nothing to do with Ruth. And so to them, to the original heroes of the story, to see that Boaz was blown away by her selection of him would have been a shocker. They would have been shocked by this. And I think that this mirrors the joy and delight that Jesus feels when we choose him. It's hard for us to understand this because when we compare his greatness and his glory to our depravity, it makes no sense. But it is true, nonetheless. God delights when we choose him over the things of the world. We are delightful to our God. How amazing is that? How beautiful is that? And so in verse 11, it says, Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary. For Everyone in town knows that you are a virtuous or a noble woman. This wording... It's the same language used to describe the Proverbs 31 woman. In fact, Ruth, this foreign Moabites, seems to look a whole lot like this Proverbs 31 woman. She works hard, she is humble, she is a blessing to her family. It's a beautiful picture. And it is also beautiful that Boaz chooses to praise her on her character rather than her looks. Godly men, it seems, see godly character. Ruth has a beauty that is far beyond her physical appearance. And so often we try to pursue the external, the visible, the physical things that men give praise for. But there is a character that garners the praise of Christ. Because Christ looks at the heart and not at the outward appearance. And I know for me, I would love to be known as a woman of noble character. Verse 12. But while it is true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. And just when things are getting good in the story, there's another man in the picture. In verse 13, it says, Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. Again, we see the incredible character of Boaz here. He wants Ruth to be his wife, but he knows that there is a way in which things are done. There is the right way to do them, and he is going to do them right. If you are in love today. If you're married, unmarried, still hoping and searching, one of the best expressions of love is to honor. Boaz honors Ruth and her purity by not taking advantage of her. He honors Ruth and Naomi by being prepared to redeem them. He, and he honors this other guy who we know nothing about. 
And I believe that this teaches us that no love story should begin with a sneaky behind-the-bank romance, but honor should be involved. Now let's look a little bit closer at Boaz. Why would this wealthy Israelite man even consider marrying a Moabite woman? Well, perhaps it's because he personally understands the mercy of God. The fact that Boaz is even in a position where he is able to redeem Ruth is because God allowed a foreigner to become part of his covenant people. See, Boaz's mom, she was not an Israelite. She was a Canaanite and a prostitute at that. And she is the woman that we read about in Joshua 2, the the woman who hid the spies in Jericho, and as a reward for that was not destroyed with the city, but was brought into the people of God. See, he had experienced mercy, and so he knew that he should give mercy in return. How much more us when we realize just how much Jesus has done for us, just how much grace we have been given, just how generous our God has been to us, how much more should we show grace and mercy and generosity? Verse 14, so Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until morning, but she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Again, Boaz shows his incredible character. He isn't trying to sneak it away so that nobody sees what went down, but this was actually done to protect Ruth. If Ruth had gone home in the middle of the night, that probably would have ended badly for her. But if she had stayed until morning and people had seen her leaving the threshing floor, her reputation would have been destroyed. And so he protects her and he protects her reputation. Verse 15, then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley. That was a lot of barley. Here's Boaz being extra generous again. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. And then he returned to the town. To the Jewish listener, the story would be very familiar. Their mind would probably go immediately to Genesis 19, which is the story of Lot and his daughters. Lot's daughters were two widows without heirs, two widows who were scheming on how to continue their family line, how to gain security. Does that sound familiar? They get their father drunk and lie down with him. They take matters into their own hands, and both daughters walk away pregnant by their father. Both walk away with seed. Boaz has just given Ruth seed. Again, there's a familiarness to this. The older daughter named her son Moab. He became the father of a Moabite. Um, And who is a Moabite in this story? Who just waited for a man to finish eating and drinking and lay down with him and walked away with seed? Ruth did. To the original listeners, hearing about a Moabite, going to an Israelite, scheming, waiting till he had finished eating and drinking, lying with him, they're probably thinking this is how the whole Moabite situation got started, in sin and in total sexual immorality. It's a similar story. It's a similar picture and yet vastly and beautifully different. Against the backdrop of the darkness of Genesis 19 and the time of Judges, where everyone was doing what they saw fit and right in their own eyes, this story shines as a picture of purity. Boaz never got drunk like Lot did. Instead of Boaz taking advantage of the situation, he doesn't act on impulse. He doesn't romanticize the decision and make a poor decision because that's not love. Love is honoring and patient and kind. Love is pure. He respects her and he honors her purity. And in this moment, the whole line, the whole concept of Moab is redeemed and brought into the line of Israel. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And even today, our views of romance and love are warped. 
Pretty much every movie or series that we watch is filled with some sort of twisted sexual immorality or another. It's culturally normal and completely acceptable. And instead of seeing it radically immoral before God, we often see it as acceptable. Um, we often let our hearts get turned by this picture, and we start to think that maybe this is what love looks like, what we see on the TV. But this is not love. Ruth chapter 3 shows us another way, a love that is pure, that is a picture of integrity and holiness. And today looks a lot like the time of judges, where everyone is doing what they see fit, what they see right in their own eyes. Sexual immorality, greed, corruption, deceit, it's wrath. But Ruth chapter 3 shines brighter, pure, clean, and uncompromising, and possible. It reminds us that it is possible. Would Ruth chapter 3 show us that God has another way, a righteous way of purity, integrity, and honor? And would it shine bright in this current culture and generation? Wouldn't be that be something if we were a people who looked like Ruth and Boaz in our culture? Verse 16, when Ruth went back to her mother-in-law and Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? This question can also be translated, who are you, my daughter? Are you still Ruth the Moabite? Are you still a widow? Or are you going to be Boaz's wife? And that seems to be the question of Ruth, who are you? And I think maybe that's the question for us. Who are we? Are we still the outsider? Are we still poor and destitute? Or are we redeemed? Are we children of God? And Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And this moment right here is probably my favorite moment in the whole book of Ruth because it's this stunning zoom in, zoom out moment. Where have we seen the word empty before? Naomi thought that she had returned to Israel empty. But here again, we see the incredible providence of God at work once more. Here is the the fulfillment of both a short-term and long-term promise for provision. Boaz gave her a very generous amount of seed to supply the immediate need of food. But he also gave her a promise that by tomorrow, Ruth would have a husband. She would be redeemed. And wound up in all of this is the even longer-term promise that this seed would see the provision of Redeemer of the whole humanity come through Ruth, the person of Jesus. The message here is that you are not empty, not by a million miles. We see Naomi in chapter one complaining to all her friends that she is empty and bitter, and yet standing beside her is a picture of the fullness of God in ways she couldn't even begin to fathom. When we feel empty, it might just be that God is setting the stage for a great display of his faithfulness to us. In verse 18, then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. And this is the last time that we will hear Ruth or Naomi speak in the book of Ruth. And we end chapter three with two widows sitting in a room waiting, waiting to see what God will do. And it's a good story. And so what can we take away from Ruth chapter three? Firstly, that it is an epic love story. We can learn about romantic relationships from the lives of Ruth and Boaz. It is good that we as believers follow the way that Ruth and Boaz did things. Ruth is humble, persistent, bold, gentle. She's hardworking, she's excellent, and she is worthy. Boaz, he's kind, he's generous, he's protecting, he's providing, he's honoring. As one pastor puts it, Boaz is a catch because he loves God and he has a job. They get to know each other over a lengthy period of time. They get to know each other in public. 
And when they are alone, they leave the time without a hint of sexual immorality. There's wisdom to be gleaned here about what, the character, what characteristics to look like, sorry, what characteristics to look for in a partner and what characteristics you should have to be a good partner. But if all we get from this chapter is how to conduct romantic relationships, then I think we've missed out on something incredibly special. As a pastor named David Platt puts it, Ruth chapter 3 shows us something about the unfathomable, indiscernible, undescribable, undeserving, magnificent, beautiful love of God. It tells the greatest love story ever told. And all throughout the book of Ruth, we have heard this word called kindness. In the Hebrew, it's a word hesed. And uh, it's not translatable. It's, um, here it's translated as kindness, but it's so much more than that. It's kindness, love, loyalty, faithfulness, grace, mercy, and compassion all wrapped up into one word. It is used to describe God's loving kindness shown to his covenant people. It's a unique and holy love. And so it's the word that is used to show how God loves his people, but it's also the word that is used to show how God's people should treat other, others. God's love spread through people, perhaps as righteous strategy, taking initiative and dreaming of how to make things right. But its origin is always from God. And the whole intent of this chapter is to turn our eyes to the loving kindness that has said of God. And in Ruth chapter 3, we see this has said being played out by the characters in the story. It shows us that love is patient. God worked, uh, God, Ruth worked hard day after day in the fields, patiently waiting the whole harvest season long. And at the end of this chapter, we see them waiting again, waiting to see what God will do. And God's love towards us is patient. He is incredibly patient with us. Though we struggle to trust him, he is still patient with us in love. We see here that love protects. Naomi's plan, whether good or bad, was based in protection for Ruth. Ruth asking Boaz to marry her was protection. It was to offer protection for her and Naomi. We see Boaz protecting Ruth and her reputation all chapter long. And God vows to protect us. He vows to spread his garment over us. He says he will become our refuge, our stronghold, our safe place. He wants to protect us. We see that love is pure, especially during a time like this to see a man and a woman um, being alone and secluded on a threshing floor and to see them both walk away morally unscathed is an impressive thing. And God's love towards us is pure. It's untainted, it's unchanged, and it's pure. And love provides. All the characters here go out of their way to provide for one another. And God's love will provide for you. If you are under the protection of God, then you will never be empty. God will stake his glory on providing for us. He owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the universe and every single thing in it. And he will provide for us. And love has a price. There are risks all over chapter three. Naomi risks Ruth. Ruth risks her reputation. Things could have gone very wrong. Boaz is going to risk his reputation by expressing desire for Ruth. Um, there's risk all over because love compels risk. So why, why do people spend lots of money to go to Mauritius um, to go join a conference there? Why do um, the Robs, or four of them, go into Lesotho so often? Why do people go into dangerous situations? Why are there people... Um, planting churches in Iran right now because love compels risk. And love paid a price for us. And this is the gospel, the greatest love story. This is how God in patient holiness shelters us from his wrath 
and saves us from our sin and redeems us. How? By sacrificing his son, the Redeemer. The greatest love story. It is the unfathomable and powerful love of God. And consider this. This is the supreme God of the universe, the, the God that created the entire cosmos. He loves you with this kind of love, with this said. Not the person behind you or the person next to you or, you know, the people in the front row, but you, every single one of you. This whole chapter is about God pouring out his said, his loving kindness on his people. And God wants to pour out his patience and provision and protection on us, just like he did to Ruth and Naomi. And he wants us to pour out his said, his loving kindness to those around us, just like Boaz did to Ruth and Naomi. He wants us to allow his love to throw through us to other people. His love promises us rest, a home, safety, and security through a redeemer, just like the story of Ruth. This redeemer named Jesus was born out of a bold request made here in Ruth chapter three. And he wants us to find rest in him. There are only two things that we need to do to find this rest. And that is to see God's presence and believe in God's promises. Ruth sought the presence of Boaz and walked away with a promise of redemption. We as believers can seek the presence of God and rest in the promise of his redemption. We can seek God's presence because Jesus made a way for us to come back into relationship with him through his death on the cross. The veil has been torn and we have complete unfettered access to him. It's incredible. We don't have to sneak onto the threshing floor at night. We don't have to do it in secret because we have complete and total access to God through Jesus. We can boldly approach the throne of grace and there we will find mercy. And we can boldly trust in the promises of God and we can boldly put ourselves to work because we know that he has said the loving kindness of God is patient and kind and will provide and will protect and will redeem. We can wait patiently for God because we can trust in his promise that he will never leave or forsake us and that he will work all things to the good of those who love him regardless of the circumstances. We can trust him with our food, we can trust him with our families and we can trust him with, his, with our future because he will provide. We see he provides food and he's providing family and he wants to do the same with us. And maybe you are here this morning and you need some of this has said from God. Maybe you are like Ruth and Naomi at the end of this chapter and you're waiting. You're waiting on God to move. Maybe it's been a few weeks, maybe it's been a few months, maybe it's been years, but you need patience to continue to wait on the Lord. Maybe you need provision. Times are tough. Maybe you're in a famine. Maybe you need God to move in your finances. Maybe you need the protection of God. Perhaps there's a sin issue that's crouching at your door, threatening to devour you. Maybe other fields are starting to look more enticing than the field of Jesus. Maybe you are being ravaged by sickness. Maybe you are wanting to run from the land that God has ordained for you to the land of compromise because it seems like it has more to offer. Maybe you need the light of purity and holiness to shine into the darkness of your situation. Maybe there are some risks you need to take in order to show his said to someone else. Maybe you've never experienced the loving kindness of God. Maybe you don't know him yet. Maybe you haven't met your Boaz yet. Maybe you haven't met Jesus, our Redeemer. But you'd like to get to know this man, this person, who loved you so much that he paid a massive price to set you free. So whether you're a believer here this morning or not, I believe that Ruth chapter three shows us that God wants to pour out his loving kindness on his people. And that includes us. 
and that there's something that God wants to do this morning where you will leave here knowing that you are loved by God, that he wants to pour out his ascent on us this morning, that he wants to redeem people this morning, that he wants to give people rest and safety and security this morning. And Ruth chapter 3 shows us that it's possible. He's done it before. Why couldn't he do it again? It is a beautiful chapter, albeit a little bit weird. And it is a beautiful book, and he is a beautiful God, and Jesus is a beautiful redeemer. And that is me. Thank you.